I am glad you clarified about Sarah, although in fairness, uh, earlier you said to me, it's not the same brain injury was, I think, how you actually phrased it. It's just to clarify there. <laughs> Sorry about that. By the way, if you drive by my house at any point and I'm out in the yard with just my tennis shoes on and not, well, not just my tennis shoes on, but not this thing is what I'm trying to get at. Um, at home, I, I take it off, but they tell me I'm supposed to wear it in public. I'm doing really well, so... Yeah, I could, I could run a mile right now. No, I couldn't, but all right. I am feeling really, really good. Uh, there is a contemporary hymn that we sing, which you probably might even, by the title here, kind of recognize where I was going with that, uh, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And uh, listen to the, the first stanza of this. And when I say listen, I'm going to speak it. I will not hurt your ears uh, to sing it. It's, it's all about the incarnation which, if, if, if that's too churchy a term, incarnation means the enfleshment, the coming in the flesh of, of Christ. It says, Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. How many know that song? We do sing it in. In, uh, in church, so uh, you should know it. Christmas uh, feels like one of those ultra-familiar kind of territories that, uh, well, I mean, after all, if you've grown up in the United States, you've probably experienced in one form or another Christmas every year. And you know the expression, familiarity breeds contempt. How many know that expression, familiarity breeds contempt? You know what it means. Basically, it's saying that if something is overused, overdone, if it becomes cliche, that we actually will start to despise the thing. We will start to mock it, make fun of it, make light of it. And that would just be a horrible, horrible thing if that happened to Christmas. And, of course, Hollywood does its share of, uh, I think they just spewed out something this year to really just mock Christmas to the, to the extreme. And uh, it, that would be so sad because... Here's the big idea today. Looking at the birth of Christ can teach our hearts to worship. Almost beyond anything else that we... That, uh, uh, if you took one single topic, obviously the atonement, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, the gospel, that would be right up there as that which should draw our heart to worship. But right next to it is the incarnation. We're going to look at five wonders from one text. This, you know, John is so densely packed, and I say that for a lot of verses of Scripture that we preach on, but this one is just, I mean, five points, one, one verse. It's all deeply, deeply stuck in there. But before I jump in there, I want to, first of all, say why it is a good thing to be drawn into worship. We are like whales that have been raised in an aquarium. Um... You say, okay, yeah, let me think about that for a second. We are. No, I mean, we, we're alive. We can say that. Um, maybe we get our three square meals a day. We get our herring. We have some buddies, you know, maybe a girlfriend or something. You know, my, but, but that's about it, right? We're just swimming around little circles all the time, keeping our brains occupied with a few tricks. But we have this sense that there's something that we were created for that, that, that this, this little thing here just doesn't quite 
represent. And it would be like being just set free in the ocean all at once. Can you imagine that whale that's never experienced the ocean all at once being out there in that vast, fathomless depths of the ocean? And suddenly you experience like, whoa, whoa, wait, this is what I was meant for. And I believe that we were wired to worship God, that that we were meant to have all of those circuits going off, but that too often we're just like somebody that was raised in the aquarium. We haven't yet learned what that's about. So we're going to look here at the text, John 1.14. This is John's nativity story. So not his nativity, but his, his version of the nativity story. Matthew tells us certain facts about Christ's birth in his early years. Luke does the same. Mark kind of just leapfrogs, goes right into the ministry of John the Baptist and on. But, but this is John's account of Christ's coming. But it's in very abstracted, very theological terms, very high theology, not much in the way of the narrative of the story itself, but really looking behind the scenes theologically. So the, here's the first um, wonder, if you will, of the text, and that is the word became flesh. The Word became flesh. And you will notice I did not try very hard to dress this up. These words are almost all 100% straight from the text. But what does it mean, the Word became flesh? Well, first of all, the Word that is being spoken of there is speaking about Christ. It is referring to Christ. If you go back to the beginning in, uh, in chapter 1, verse uh, 1, it says, In the beginning... These should sound like familiar words to you. In the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, yeah, you know this. Okay, so that is saying that, be, that, that Christ was preexistent to his birth, and that, the, that he then became a man. He took on our flesh. Note it does, it does not say in the text that he pretended to take on our flesh. It didn't, he didn't just like put on a costume. He didn't use a computer simulation to make it sort of like that. It literally says, and the word, that is the incarnate, uh, the pre-incarnate son of God, the, the God, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh. Which is a truth that should break the universe. Shouldn't it? If you really think about what we're saying, the God who created the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit, that that God became flesh is just beyond us. It is, it's a mystery so profound that though we can say it accurately, and from the time you're a very small child, you can, you can recite the creeds, you can read the scripture, you can say it, your parents can teach this to you, and you can say without any difficulty that, that, that you believe that, that God became man. That he was born of a virgin. We just let that roll right off. But he's born of a virgin. You know, like that happens every day, right? Like born, born of a virgin, God in the flesh. We can confess these things, but we can't really attain to what we're saying when we say those things. You realize that, right? That you're, just, you're saying something that's true, but you're saying something that you don't fully grasp. So if we understand the what of it, the God... The Son became flesh, and, and we kind of realize we don't understand the how of it. Then, then comes the question, the why of it. Why would he do that? And the short answer for that is for our redemption, because there was no other way 
to save us, no other way to redeem us from our sins. Look what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver that salvation we're speaking about. Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He became flesh among... Well, he came... Partly because of that's, he was obedient to the Father. But if we're looking for the reason related to us, it, it was that he might save us from our sins. That he might redeem us from the power of the devil and, and from all of the consequences of our sin. Why did we put a man on the moon? Beat the Russians. That's a good... Yeah, pretty much... Competition, pride, see if we could do it. We're always, you know, mankind explores, wants to do, wants to see how far we can go, what all, you know, we, we, we can make happen. But ask yourself the question, why did God send his son into the world to become of our flesh? And the answer is um, <laughs> to save us, to save us. And that one thought, just getting a hold of that at Christmas ought to raise our ability to worship him. Second wonder of the incarnation is the word tabernacled with us. The word tabernacled with us. Yeah. That's churchy sounding, isn't it? I would put that really high up there. We heard propitiation earlier uh, was thrown out there. Uh, this is up there. Tab- Who says tabernacled? Do you guys throw that around? When your Uncle Joe wants to come over and visit for a while, hey, I'm going to bring my camper over there. And uh, if I could park in your driveway and hook up to the electric, that'd be swell. I'm just going to tabernacle with you for a while. Is that what your Uncle Joe says? Nobody speaks that way, right? But, but what, what, what are we looking at? It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. And the word dwelt there is the Greek word skanao, which is related to the idea of a tent. Or... Old Testament language, the tabernacle. Remember, in the Old Testament, how was God with his people? You go back to Egypt, he came, he did those, those wonders, brought the plagues against Egypt, and then he led them with that, that, that pillar of fire and the column of smoke. They get out into the, the wilderness, and Moses meets with God in the tent of meeting, and then God instructs him on how to build a tabernacle, which was just a glorified tent of meeting. It was a larger tent of meeting. You had the, the courtyard, the holy place. Within it, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Giving you a big sweeping view of the Old Testament real quickly. And of course, eventually they built the temple, which was just really the, the idea of the tabernacle, but in a more permanent way in their midst. God said to them, and let them make me a sanctuary. And he's talking there at that moment about the about the tabernacle, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That I may dwell in their midst. By God's Son becoming a man, he became the first, the, 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 the best at expression of God dwelling in the midst of his people. He was the spiritual reality of that tabernacle in the Old Testament. So the tabernacle and the temple were a shadow, and I'm borrowing from the writer of Hebrews there to use his language, but those things were a shadow representing the reality. And who was the reality, or what was the reality? It was Christ in the flesh, God in their midst, Emmanuel. Isn't it ironic that there he stood, 
Last, the last week of Christ's life leading up to the crucifixion, do you remember he went to the t- tabernacle, went to the temple every day and he spoke to them. And ironically, there he was standing with the backdrop of that shadow of the reality that was himself and they didn't see it. In fact, when they put him before that, that trial, that kangaroo court that they, that they uh, convicted him in, um, they, one of the things, what did they accuse him of? Speaking against the temple. He was the reality of that. He was God in their midst. You know, we sing in, the, in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I was happy that we, we sang that today. By the way, do you know that Hark the Herald Angels Sing is probably the most theologically rich carol of all? Like, it's just... You know, it, it, like, like this verse, it's very densely packed. But within that, we read, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. How could it be pleasing for God to want to dwell with us? Like, I don't know, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty nice guy. Why wouldn't he want to dwell with me? Really? Does anybody actually feel that way? Pick a group of people you really don't like. Now, don't blurt it out because that would make you a bigot. But just pick some group of people you really can't relate to very well in a time period in history that seems really awful to you. I'll go first. I just, you know, I think back to the plagues in Europe, being a peasant during the medieval period, during the plagues. That, to me, sounds like an awful place to be. What about you? Have you got one picked in your mind, someplace you've always thought, boy, if I had to be born in history, that's not where I'd want to be born. I asked Scott this, and he came up with Apocalypto, which I thought was really creative of him. You know, did you see the movie Apocalypto about the Mayans, and they would steal local tribes' people and, you know, give them a nice little festival and then rip their heart out? Um, not a good time to live. Not a good time to live. You know, the, the idea, the willingness of Christ to come and become flesh, to dwell with us, would be like if you could put yourself into some weird time reality machine and, and be born into the worst time period you could imagine. And, and that still wouldn't sum it up. That still wouldn't even get close to it. Listen to the words of Paul to the Philippians. He says, Who though he was in the form of God, and it's talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is no analogy that we can come up with that, be, that even strikes close to the reality of Christ's willingness to dwell with us. To dwell with us. I don't even want to dwell with me. You ever feel that way? Am I the only one that ever feels that way? Like, if I could get away from me, I would totally do it. Uh, yeah? That, God, that, that Christ would choose to put himself in that place where he is with us. And then, of course, to die for us. The third wonder. The third wonder is we have seen his Glory. We've seen his glory. Those are literally the next words in the text. And we have seen his glory. Seeing God's glory in an immediate, up close and personal way is a dodgy proposition at best. God told Moses, you can't see my face and live. You know, it's just impossible uh, to do. That's why when God revealed himself to Moses, he had to hide him in the cleft of the rock and pass by him so that he could only see him from the, from the back. 
But Jesus is the exact image of the Father to us. When we see Jesus, we see the glory of God. Look what the writer of Hebrews says. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Talk about God the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When you see Jesus, you see glory. You see the glory of of God. Now, exactly what did uh, John mean when he says, we have seen his glory? It could be several things that he means there. He could could be referring, when he says we, (laughs) he could mean the 500 or so that saw Jesus in his resurrected state. That That would certainly kind of fit, wouldn't it? He might mean the three. Can you, can you think of the three people I'm thinking of? It would be John himself, because he can say we. And then it would be Brother James and Peter. They went up to that mountain, which became known then as the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't think they called it that up to that moment. But then they, they go up on that mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. And they see him literally, you know, Luke tells us, in his glory. He's just brighter than the noonday sun, and they see him in his glory. But there are other ways of thinking of it, too. How many people during the life of Christ saw a glimpse of the glory of Christ? You could go all the way back to the shepherds, couldn't you? You could go back to the shepherds. You could go back to the wise men. You think about Peter. You remember the first time Peter really got a glimpse of the glory of Christ? He saw him as a man standing there, talking to him, saying, Hey, why don't you throw your net on the other side of the boat? And he's like, Yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. And he does, and then there's this huge haul of fish, and it almost sinks the boat. And what does it tell us? You know, Peter fell on his face. Why? He's like, Get away from me. I'm not a holy guy. Right? I, I'm a sinner. Because he saw a glimpse of the glory of, of Christ in that moment. The centurion who saw his glory when he was standing there at the cross, and, and as Jesus gives up his spirit, he's like, Truly, this is the Son of of God. You could think of Mary on Easter morning. You could think of Thomas a day or two later when he's standing there and Jesus appears and says, Don't doubt, Thomas. You know, look, stick your stick your hand in my side if you need to. Put your put your finger in the nail print and, and be believing. All of those people saw the glory of Christ. Glory is to worship what flame is to a moth. Some people are good with analogies. Some people are slow, so I'm going to say it again. Well, it's true. Not everybody likes analogies. Some people's brains just work differently, right? Uh, Glory is to worship what flame is to a moth. If we think of glory as the full expression of God's presence, then it follows that when we get even a glimpse of who God is, when we get just a glimpse of of his glory that we will be drawn toward worship that that will be the instinct of our heart fear probably but but fear bound up in the idea of worship we are creatures i said this earlier i'll say it again we are wired to worship you may not think that you may think ah i've heard stuff like that before how many were pretty jazzed to see tiger back out on the golf course there would be there are people that would spend millions of dollars if they could stand next to him when he tees off, 
even, even when he's at like half of his normal capacity. If, if they could say, I stood next to Tiger when he, te- if I could do 18 rounds, there are people, you know, people paid how many millions of dollars to go up uh, in, in the spacecraft. There are people that would pay more just, just to play 18 with Tiger. Because it's, it's, it's a kind of worship. It's like, you know, we have that term goat. Uh, that just seems like a really recent term to me. I don't know why they keep calling these athletes goats. Um, you know why they call them goats? Greatest, greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. So if, if a person's a goat, then they're Michael Jordan or they're Tiger Woods or, or whatever. And we, and we worship these people. By that I mean we're drawn to them. We just, we're, we're in awe of them. Why, why do we like that? Why aren't we just like, I don't care. Why do we want to be near these people? Why do we, you know, it, it, it makes no sense. It's, it's because we are wired to worship. We long to see Glory that is beyond what, what we personally have experienced. But the greatest glory that our hearts can take in is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Amen? Now, you and I cannot say that we have beheld Jesus with, the eye, you know, with, with our physical eyes the way John could say we have beheld his glory. But if you have believed in the gospel, then the eyes of your heart have seen him. Have they not? Yeah. Maybe through a glass dimly. You know, Paul talks about that. But we have laid eyes on him. We have seen his glory. In it, and it has been filtered to us through the gospel. In the gospel we take hold of that. And it should bring us to worship. And, and, and Christmas ought to be one of those times where we just, it, it, in an ever increasing way, look upon that. If God, you know, if there's things in your life right now that aren't, the happiest, you know, if, if you're feeling deprived of something or bereft of something and, and you're, use that for the generation of worship. Use that because whatever it is you're missing or you think you don't have or the thing that was taken away from you, that hurts, I know, but use that to draw you to what you have in Christ. You have the Savior of the world. Let that pull you deeper and deeper into that. Use the word of God. The disciplines, right? The spiritual disciplines to draw near. Fourth wonder of the incarnation. His glory is that of the only Son of the Father. And you've probably heard that before. Where have you heard that, that word? Same word. Off, most oft-quoted verse of, in all of Scripture. John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you know what only begotten means? Well, you'd think so, right? I mean, only begotten, would, it would stand to reason that that would be the only son you have. The only one born of, of your parentage, right? That's, that's your only begotten son. Now, that's, that's generally speaking, that's quite true. But there's a, little, there's a little angle here that I want you to understand. That is that... Um, it could also be used when a person had more than one son. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. How many know their Bibles really well? Here comes the question. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? No, there was another one in there. What was his name? Ishmael, right. right. So what is the writer of Hebrews saying there? 
He's saying that, that this is, is, is the preeminent son of his love, the one that, that was most loved, if you will, the beloved son. So I'm not denying that Jesus is the only begotten in that, in that sense. There are no other sons of God. We're sons of God only by adoption, through the work of the Holy Spirit, by you know, being born again, being brought into that. But it's also saying, and this is the part where I don't want you to miss it, it, it it's that we're talking about the son of of God's love. No matter how much he loves us who have been adopted and brought in, there is no son of God that we can speak of who is more loved than the son of God, Jesus Christ. It says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is Peter, by the way, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 2 Peter 1.17 Peter heard that voice from heaven. This is my beloved son, speaking about Jesus, in whom I'm well pleased. God gave his best. How can we even begin to fathom that? Paul says, he who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God gave his best. How many have seen Saving Private Ryan? I'm a chicken. I have never watched that movie. Because I remember when it came out, I was really excited about it. I, oh, another good Tom Hanks film and all that, blah, blah, blah. And then I read the reviews, or read not so much the reviews, the accounts of people watching the film. And there were news stories about people vomiting um, from the depiction of D-Day and some people fleeing the theater crying and some people supposedly even having PTSD from watching 10 minutes of that, of that movie where they depict D-Day, and I thought, nope, <laughs> nope, don't want to see that. But I, but I understand what the movie's about, and, and maybe you know as well. Uh, it's, it's based on a true story. The U.S. military adopted a policy that they called the sole survivor policy. Are you familiar with that? What was happening, and it has happened more than once, but, but there were families, and this is you know, back in the day of larger families, and there were families that may have three, four, five sons, and they'd go off to war, and all of them would be killed. And people back home started saying, that's not right, you can't have that. There was the very famous Sullivan brothers, they were on board a ship, and the Japanese sunk it, and all of them died, and that was all the sons of that family. And so they adopted this sole survivor um, policy, and so Saving Private Ryan was like, hey, this guy's brothers have all been killed, and he's out there. It's D-Day. He's out there, you know, on the front line somewhere. We've got to find him because we can't let him die because he's the last remaining son. Why? Why would, you do, why would they have gone? And, and, of course, part of the idea of the movie is like they went to such great effort and some died trying to rescue this guy. Was, was his life worth so much more? But it was the idea that you don't take the one and only son from a family. That's just a cost too high. You mean for freedom and, and country and all that, it's too high? Yeah, it's too high. You don't do that. And yet God gave his only begotten son, the son of his love. How can our hearts not respond to that? How can we not be drawn into worship when we just consider that, that, that one thought? And the last wonder that we behold is that he is full of grace and truth. Now we could, in that case, just pick up a dictionary and look up those two words. 
Or if it's a Greek dictionary, we call that a Greek lexicon. So we could go for the lexical definition and and we would see, of course, on the one hand, we know what grace means. It's sort of the unmerited favor of God in its first instance, the unmerited favor of God. And truth is that which corresponds to reality. And we could just say, well, that's good. That's we're done, right? We've 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 gotten to the bottom of it. But John here is probably not using a a dictionary or a lexicon. He's probably actually thinking back to something from the Old Testament. Do you remember the golden calf incident? If you've seen Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments with, uh, you know, that that whole uh, business, you, you kind of remember that, right? Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments. He comes down from the mountain. They've made a golden calf. They're bowing down to that. He breaks them, right? He throws them down, breaks the tablets. He goes back up after he's dealt with that whole thing. And then he goes back up with with two blank tablets and God writes the Ten Commandments again. But at that point, something else happened. The Lord passed by Moses. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now, this is God explaining himself. This, not that God has to, but he dis, he's revealing, he's disclosing the kind of God he is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So scholars, New Testament scholars, believe that that's the backdrop that John has in mind when he says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Where's the grace part? Well, it's the gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's kind of summarized under the idea of grace. You say, well, where's the truth part? I didn't even see the word truth in there. It's the, it's the word faithfulness. The way God described himself in terms of his faithfulness. Because truth is more than just that which corresponds to reality. See, you could be a complete jerk and tell the truth, couldn't you? You could be a doctor and somebody comes in and, and they've got terminal cancer and you say to them, yeah, you're going to die. Sorry, you're going to die. Everybody's going to forget you. Yeah, three years from now, people won't even remember your name probably. I mean, you could be, right? I mean, there, there'd be some truth in that perhaps. And, and, uh, but you'd be a jerk. You'd be a total jerk if you, if, if you did that. Truth here as it's being used, is, is speaking about that kind of truth when a father says to his child, I am with you. I am not going to let anything happen to you. I will keep you safe. I will protect you. I will make sure that we get through this and you'll be fine because you're with me. That's truth of a different kind, isn't it? That's the faithfulness of God. God is not capable of lying. He can promise and he can deliver what he has promised. And Jesus is the full expression of that. So Jesus is full of grace. Everything about his life reeked of the love and and the mercy and the grace of God. But he was also truth in the sense of the faithfulness of God. We can trust him. Remember when he said to his disciples, believe in God or trust in God, trust also in me. You remember how it goes on from there? In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also, that I'll come and I'll... So that's the faithfulness, that's the truth-telling of Christ. What does your heart do with that, with that truth? Full of grace and truth. 
watched an interesting video not long ago um, because I do that. Um, how many just sit around watching YouTube videos from time to time? Do you ever waste any time doing that? See, it becomes a sermon illustration, so it's all, it's all okay. I was watching a, this one caught my eye, and it was about the physics of bicycles. Have anybody happened to see that by any chance? Uh, that'd be a weird, yeah? Okay. At least one person. Yeah, I saw this. It popped up. I'm like, oh, I got to watch this. Uh, yeah. and, and here's the deal, the bottom line. I'm not a physics major. I've never I've really been into science in general, but, um, except I like to talk science. But, um, so, so this is the bottom line. It's, we do not know how bicycles work. You're like, yeah, yeah, I, I totally know how bicycles work. You know, I've taught many a child to ride a bicycle. I know exactly how they work. But the physics of it are hard to understand. We've actually gone through, as it turns out, I did not know this, several different common accepted explanations for how it is that a bicycle manages to work and achieve stability. There used to be theories about the size of the wheels and blah, 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 and this and that. And, uh, and it's gone through several permutations, and they've, they've arrived at one now, but they haven't even fully tested it to, whether, whether, to know whether it's precisely correct or not. So we can look at a bicycle and we can see that the bicycle... How many can ride a bicycle? How many are still feeling challenged by bicycles? Any of you? Okay. Yeah, it's not really that hard, isn't it? But anybody can explain what a, how a bicycle works. You get on the thing and you, get, you try to get your balance a little bit. You push down and, and it goes. And, and then as soon as you get moving, it's just stable, right? That's so, so simple to understand. Yeah. Christmas. The virgin birth, the second person of the Godhead, born in a stable, taking on our flesh, becoming as a man. We can say that. It can just roll off of our tongue, just like watching a bicycle going down the bicycle lane, and we just don't think a thing about it. But can we really, can we really get behind and understand it? The truth is, it is a mystery. Some people don't like the word mystery in the context of the Christian faith, but there's a right way and a wrong way to use that word. And this is ultimately that sort of use that's right of mystery because we can say it, we can see it, the Bible explains it to us. We're not trying to hide the mystery from anyone. It's just at the end of the day, how do we explain it? The word... The Word, God the Son, became a man. The eternal Son of God took on flesh, not disguising his nature, taking on our nature. He dwelt among us, pitching his tent, his tabernacle, drawing near to filthy sinners. For what reason? Why? And we have seen his glory. Glory as that of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We can let Christmas come and go like the bicycle passing us along the road without much thought, or we can stop and we can behold the wondrous mystery. And doing that can teach us in a fresh way how to worship. Now, why do we want to worship? Well, because, first of all, God deserves worship. God is, is the greatest being not in the universe, but over and through the universe because he made the universe. And so the greatest, highest good, aside from God himself, is, is, is to draw glory to him and worship him. That, that's first and foremost. But, but there is something in it for us, believe it or not. And that is, that is when we are most, most who we were created to be. 
That's when all of the circuits, you know, just imagine all of this circuitry in you, the way you were designed. Imagine every circuit for once in your life firing correctly. Has anybody ever felt that way? Like everything was working perfectly? God designed us to worship him. And when we see that and when we fall into that worship, then we experience peace and joy and, and awe and wonder and, and, and um, something amazing. We owe it to ourselves this Christmas to do that. And if you don't know Jesus, then we kind of hold him out to you, kind of. I don't know, you know, Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness and those that looked to that were healed of, of the snake bites that they'd gotten. But, but we hold Jesus out to you as that mystery. And, and we say with the song, come behold the wondrous mystery. And we declare him to you. We say to you, as, as it says in John, that, that, that the word became flesh and, and dwelt among us and that, that he did so to save us. So if you look to Jesus today and you see his glory and, you know, you, you, wanna, you want what, what's there, you want Christ, then let go. <laughs> let go of everything you're clinging to, your sin, your rebellion, your stubbornness, whatever else it is, and look to Jesus and trust him. And he is faithful. He is faithful. When, when, when we say he's full of grace, we're saying he's got grace to save you. And he will be faithful to save you if you turn to him. He will not let you down. He will not let you perish. He will, he will take you as his child. So turn to him today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as Christmas here approaches very shortly, the, the day of is, is not long off. Uh, I pray that we, your people, would be able to break through some of the noise around us and, and behold the wondrous mystery that, that Christ took on flesh and dwelt with us and revealed his glory. And in that, Lord, we saw grace and truth, grace and truth sufficient for our very salvation. And Lord, pull us in in a deeper way to the full experience of the worship that that we should be able to, to sense and feel and, and engage in. And I do pray, Lord, that today might be the day that someone begins to worship you truly in spirit and truth for the first time because you, you reach them and you, you cause them to be born again. Bring them to faith in your son, we ask, Lord, and, and may this be the, the best Christmas that they'll ever know. We ask it in your name. Amen.